Need a lesson? Raise your hand. They're going to be fixing lights for a second, so it's going to look like a disco in here. Y'all come on in and uh, do your light work. Um, if you want, if you need a lesson, raise your hands. We've got some. Philip, uh, oh, there. <laughs> yeah, disco, see? Whoa. We just need the, the spinning ball and the music. Um, so does it like stay this way? The, oh. We're going to have to go through Genesis and let there be light. Um, we've got uh, some hands down here. Hi, Kay. Uh, if you all need a lesson. This morning, we do St. John Chrysostom. That's not a typo. Whoops. That's not a typo. St. John Chrysostom. Um, isn't that goofy? Yeah. Speaking of goofy... Um, if you've got, uh, everybody's got a lesson. Okay, we've got lights, we've got cameras, we're ready to go. Here's your question for the day. Who's your favorite preacher? Anybody have a favorite preacher? If you've got one, just raise your hand so I know someone's got one. Okay, that's interesting. You know, who's your favorite preacher? You don't have to answer out loud. Um, I've done kind of some polling. I've asked some people some questions. One of my favorite preachers is Charles Mickey, sitting there on the third row. He's someone I grew up listening to that helped move me along in the Lord a lot. You get to hear him sometimes uh, uh, when uh, I'm gone from this class because he fills in. Um, for a lot of people, they might say Damon Shook, who we had last week, is one of their favorite preachers. Uh, Damon was an outstanding preacher here for 27 years. How long? For a, 27 years. A long time. Really good at communicating God's love and God's message. And saw God bless this church in, in incredible growth numerically and spiritually while he was the pastor here. Um, Billy Graham I talked about a uh, week before last and, and has been on the cover of Time and Newsweek as he's gotten through the ages. Anybody ever heard Billy Graham speak live? Most of you have. Uh, I, I have not heard him speak live. I've heard him on TV uh, truly an incredible preacher for over 50 years, he's proclaimed. Supposedly has preached the gospel to more people worldwide than anyone else. And, and is, is very profound and a lot of people would list him as their favorite preacher. Uh, as I did sort of some uh, indiscriminate polling, Rick Warren. Uh, I don't know how many of you have ever been to his church or heard him preach or seen him on TV. I'll bet a lot of you have at least read his Purpose Driven Life or his Purpose Driven Church books. But Rick Warren is a very powerful preacher. My wife said to me the other day, I saw him on TV for the first time. She said, he's really good. And kind of shocked. Like, I didn't expect him to be. Like, those who can, can write usually don't preach. And those who can preach usually can't write. And uh, this guy seems to be able to do both. He's certainly got a huge church in terms of numbers. That does a lot of good. Um, Joel Osteen, I was told by some folks, uh, is one of their favorite preachers. Uh, uh, Joel Osteen's got uh, our old basketball arena loaded and packed full right now speaking. Um, he, to me, is not as much of a preacher typically as, as what we would be used to in this tradition. But certainly there are a lot of people who recognize him as uh, uh, one of the outstanding preachers. I'll tell you one of my favorites that passed away in 2003 was E.V. Hill. Uh, I don't know how many of you ever got a chance to hear him speak, but this guy was powerful. 
Um, there's another fellow that I really enjoy listening to. I don't care as much for the content of what he has to say, and he probably wouldn't care for the content of what I have to say, but his speaking style just charges my batteries. I can't turn him off when I catch him on TV. And uh, that's uh, uh, Kenneth Copeland. Uh, I, I don't agree with him on a lot of theology, which means I guess by definition he doesn't agree with me much either, though he probably doesn't give a rip. Um, but, uh, you know, just, he's just, something about the way he speaks, it just, just is fun to watch. Um, some people might say John MacArthur is one of their favorite preachers. Uh, uh, I've got some family members who really enjoy John MacArthur. I've got some good friends who listen to his tapes. Uh, if you were to ask me who are two of my favorite preachers to go listen to, uh, I'd have to say one of them, uh, uh, historically, has been a fellow named Jack Hayford uh, out uh, uh, in north of L.A. in one of the suburbs. And Jack Hayford is just a phenomenal preacher, very, n not, not in a way that's dynamic and bold, um, but in a way that's very compact and direct and very real in life. And uh, he doesn't quite rhyme everything he says, but he certainly will have three points in every sermon, and each will start with the same letter, which makes him uh, real easy to remember. Um, uh, when I was growing up, one of my favorite preachers uh, was a fellow named Don Fento. And the, the Riddles, for example, uh, have shared Don Fento as one of their favorite preachers in the past. Don Fento was a dynamic personality. He was someone who, who just seemed to be different in the way he did things. I'll never forget being in church one Wednesday night. And uh, we were singing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Does anybody know that song? Everybody does. Well, Don Fento was also a German professor before he went into full-time ministry. Uh, at uh, David Lipscomb in Nashville, Tennessee. And he just bounded out of his seat and he stopped the congregation singing. And he said, this is beautiful. This is powerful. But we're missing it when we don't sing it in German. And he just starts belting it out. Or whatever. I don't know, but it really was powerful sounding in German. German makes everything sound powerful. Um, <laughs> Either that or everything sounds like a cuss word in German. I can never decide which it is. Um, but uh, Don Fento, a uh, uh, very, very powerful preacher to a young boy uh, like me. Um, uh, so I don't know who your favorite preacher is, but I'm going to ask you another question. And that is, what makes a great preacher? And I want you to chew it. In fact, this will take verbal responses. What makes a great preacher? Integrity. I don't have that up here. What else? <laughs> I need a little bit more. Communication, uh, communication a smooth delivery. We, like, Hi. How about that? How about stunning biblical insight? And what else do we like? We like someone who's entertaining, someone who makes you laugh. Keeps your attention going. What else do we like? Good looks? No, that just makes you laugh. Dare we say that we want a pep rally from our preacher? Because I've been told by some that that's what they like. Now, I like the integrity. 
and it's in here, but it's just not in here yet. We kind of merge into it this morning. I want you to consider St. John Chrysostom as one of the greatest preachers in the history of the church. He preached in the late 300s into the early 400s, and he truly is probably the only preacher of antiquity whose sermons I like to sit and read today. And if we had a better English translation of his sermons, many of those sermons we could give in our church today, and people would be blessed and their lives would be changed. Um, if we go back a couple of years, uh, uh, you know, you can now be a Christian in Russia, and uh, the churches have come back there. And Archpriest Vitaly Borovoy delivered a sermon a few years back, and the title of his sermon was, He Was a True Pastor. And this was at uh, uh, the Evangelical Church, or I mean, Ecumenical, no, it's called Ekaloi, it's some, it's in your handout, read it. Uh, there's a church in Moscow, and this is one of the main cathedrals there in Moscow, and this is where he preached the sermon. And this was a sermon, he was a true pastor, and the sermon was about St. John Chrysostom, the gentleman that we'll be studying this morning. If you read the sermons of St. John Chrysostom, and we have over 600 of those sermons still available because while he gave them, see, you got to remember back then they didn't have like microphones and tapes and stuff, and they didn't have them on the internet. But what they did have are stenographers who would sit out for some preachers and would take down their sermons. And these stenographers would take it down in shorthand. And St. John Chrysostom was such a powerful preacher that there were multiple stenographers who would attend his sermons. Now, when he preached, his delivery style was fairly informal. He would have interchange with his audience. He would stand up and speak as if it were just, uh, it, it was never a read speech on his part. It was not pre-written where he stood up and just read a delivery. It was very much, it came across almost extemporaneously. Not that different than the way this class is conducted. Um, uh, and the stenographers wouldn't typically take down the audience interchange. But uh, that audience interchange did take place. And his sermons, if you think about the different ways preachers preach, some preachers preach on topic. And they'll have a topical series or a topical sermon. Uh, uh, you know, we're going to teach a series of six sermons on how to be happy with your life. Or we're going to, good to have you back. We're going to have a series of 12 sermons on financial responsibility and stewardship or you know you've heard topical preachers like that and then other preachers tend to preach just biblically they would just say okay we're going to preach the ephesians and so for the next six weeks we're going to go through paul's letter to the ephesians and and uh, we're going to see how he progresses uh, uh, in 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 what he teaches there john chrysostom was much the latter he gave strong biblical sermons. His sermons were very Bible-based. But even though they were Bible-based, the point of them was never really to develop theology. The point of his lessons was to challenge the Christians listening to change the way they lived. He wanted to reach out and just grab you by the throat and say, change the way you lived. Be someone different because Jesus Christ lives inside you. 
And so he took scripture. He would exposit on that scripture or preach on it. But always in his sermons, he drives home the point of change who you are because of who he is and what he is doing in you. Now, those are powerful sermons, but here we come to the integrity word. Because if a good preacher is a preacher with integrity, he doesn't only stand up there and say it, what else does he do? He lives it. And uh, St. John Chrysostom lived it. He, he lived, he, his life was an example, an exemplar life. It was one that challenges me, and it's one that I hope might challenge you. And might also give you a little sustenance to make it through your week, depending on what kind of week you have. Who was John Chrysostom? Well, I don't know if that's a real picture of him. I can tell you that he was about five foot tall. So, I mean, this guy's not like a towering, don't think of Goliath, think more Lewis. Um, (laughs) This guy is is not, uh, you know... Um, Chrysostom, we can get rid of that name in a way because that name wasn't really assigned to him for at least 100 years after he died. Okay? Chrysostom um, um, is, is gr- two Greek words put together. It means golden-mouthed. Okay? That's because this guy, he was smooth. People would come to hear him preach just to hear him preach. He was, he was interesting. He was entertaining. He was inspirational. When he spoke, sometimes his audience would break out in applause. They would break out in laughter. They would break out in crying. Um, uh, He was a very interesting man. St. John was born in 347 in Antioch. If we throw Antioch up here. This is just the Middle East. Um, Here's Israel and Jerusalem going up the Jordan River, Sea of Galilee, Damascus. This is modern Syria, north of Lebanon right now, and Turkey. Antioch was up there near Turkey, near the border of Turkey. And that's where uh, uh, this this fellow, St. John, was born. John was born of fairly well-to-do family, had pretty wealthy folks. His dad was in the military and was a lord high muckety-muck in the military, pretty high up. Uh, His mother uh, uh, had been a young bride, as was typical at the age uh, of that day. Uh, St. John Chrysostom had uh, an older sister, I believe, and his father died at a very young age, leaving the mother as a widow with two children, and the mother was 20 years old. Um, 20-year-olds, I don't even see, I don't think they're done raising themselves. Okay, I got one that's 21 and a half and, or almost 22, and, and he's close to grown up, but I still look at him, and he's still got a ways to go, you know? I got a daughter who's 17. She's about to be 18. She's not even remotely close to being ready to rear two kids, and I'm glad she realizes that. Uh, you know, I, I, I look at it, and I'm amazed, but this was a Christian woman. And she reared her children and she reared them well. She saw that they got very good educations. John Chrysostom went to some of the very best schools that were around. Antioch was probably the second largest city in the eastern half of the Roman Empire, next only to Constantinople at this point in time. And so 
Antioch, a city famous for its Christianity. It was in Antioch where the church members were first called Christians. We read that in Acts. And uh, so there in Antioch uh, is is St. John Chrysostom growing up. His initial training um, was to be a lawyer. He was trained to be a trial lawyer. And uh, uh, he was trained in rhetoric and trained in oratory and trained in arguing. Uh, Was trained under a fellow named Libanius who was uh, um, about as as pagan as as pagan could be. Um, Was not a Christian at all, but was by far the leading intellect of the area, maybe the most famous teacher of his day and age. And we still have writings of Libanius around today that you can read if you want to be bored out of your gourd. Um, And uh, that was the life plan for for John. He was going to be a trial lawyer. And uh, he hit his 20s and and, uh, decided at the age of 23, he was baptized. He was uh, really in awe by the bishop Miletus at the time. And and uh, met him, was baptized, and left the law to uh, work at the church. He started out, and the first thing he started out as was a reader. He was consecrated as a reader. Now, back then, a reader did more in the church than if you go to a formal church today. We don't consider this really formal worship. What we do here is, is considered uh, informal. But you've been to high churches, Right? And you've seen readers, and typically the reader is going to stand up there and, and read, the hom- uh, read the scripture or the gospel or whatever it is for the day. Okay, that's a little different than what readers did back in his day. Back in his day, the reader not only read it to the congregation, but would expound on it a little bit. And so it was kind of a reading, teaching thing. And I think formed the basis for how he started delivering his sermons later because his sermons were very much, here's the scripture, let me tell you what the scripture means. And that's the way he started out. He started out as a reader. He was very enthralled with his faith and and he went to live for six years in a monastery outside Antioch. The monastery was, life was one where you were devoting your time basically to study of God's word. They didn't really have seminaries per se. And uh, the monastery was the way typically ministers would study and, and learn uh, their, their seminary type work. So he goes to a monastery. He learns that he also does service for the poor in the monastery and also spends a lot of time in prayer. Now, during the six years in the monastery, he takes two years off and decides he wants to go live in the caves and do the aesthetics thing where he would eat only bread and water and live without any things and without any of the comforts of life and be basically in seclusion and uh, 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 try to come to grips with his place before God. Uh, that was very tough on his health. It gets very cold there in the winter times at night. And uh, he suffered a lot of, of health problems that ultimately caused him to move back. Uh, those health problems plagued him, most doctors and scholars think, for the rest of his life. Um, but he, he spends those two years in the wilderness, and then he becomes, he's ordained a deacon in the church at the age of 33. Now, a deacon in the church at the time was concerned um, with the day-to-day ministerings that the church needed to do to the poor and the downtrodden, uh, the widows, the orphans, the, the sick and the infirm. And this is what his job was. He would day-to-day try and take care of those people that were hurting that the church needed to tend to. At the age of 39, he becomes a priest. 
And here he steps into his element. And for the next 10 years, he serves as a priest in Antioch, delivering daily, uh, daily, daily sermons. I mean, this wasn't just like go to church on Sunday. This guy's up there daily delivering sermons. We have a lot of his sermons still here. And uh, uh, he was very powerful as a priest. Um, he had a huge effect on the people. He continued his aesthetic lifestyle. He was not the kind of priest that had the $3,000 Oxford suits. He didn't even have the men's warehouse suit. Okay? He just kind of had his basic clothes. And he didn't have but maybe one or two changes of clothes. So you'd see him in it just about every day. Uh, he uh, um, uh, would take uh, the money that was offered to the church as the priest. He wouldn't keep the money. He'd use it for the poor and other things. Uh, it had a huge effect on his community. Antioch got real upset. And there's a typo in your lesson, but we'll get it fixed when it goes on the Internet. I, in your lesson, I said it was 397. It was 387, and I didn't catch it till this morning when I was going back over it. In 387, Antioch was in a bit of an upheaval. The emperor at the time was Theodosius. If you were here last week, you remember we talked about Theodosius, the guy farmer turned general who wiped out the Gauls in a sense and came to the rescue of the Roman Empire, and we talked about him last week. Well, this emperor had, uh, had no qualms about killing about 6,000 people in Thessalonica during an uprising in Thessalonica. And uh, he, he had a temper when it came to his citizens uprising. In Antioch, the citizens revolted because of a tax increase Theodosius put in. And the, the revolting took the form of finding statues of the emperor Theodosius and his family and basically toppling them or putting graffiti on them or you know, doing little Hitler mustaches on him or something like that, and uh, the functional equivalent back then. And, and, and it infuriated Theodosius, and the whole town was scared to death that Theodosius was going to send his generals down and wipe out the town in discipline. And so for 21 weeks in a row, there's a sermon preached. For 21 weeks in a row, St. John stands up in his pulpit and tells the people, listen, you don't do this. You don't revolt against the government. You don't blah, 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 blah. And he preaches from the scriptures just powerful sermons about how they need to, to, to change their life and show the love of Christ in the way they treat people, in the way they treat the emperor, in the way they treat each other, in the way they conduct their lives. He says, you don't just come to church, sit here and get all inspired by this sermon and then turn around and leave and act like nothing happened and let your life resume its normal course. Because that's not what this is about. Christianity is not a sometime event. It is a life change. To be a disciple, if we want to add on to this morning's lesson, is not a sometime occupation. It's a 24-7 commitment. It lasts all the time. Um, the emperor was duly impressed and spared the city uh, because of the powerful impact that... Um, John had on its listeners and on the, the people there. Now, meanwhile, life is going on. Let's expand our map here and look. This is a satellite view of, that's uh, Turkey. Now, if I had really been tacky, Lewis, I'd have figured out how to like change the clouds in this with Photoshop to look like you and said, that's Turkey. But I didn't do that. <laughs> if I had known the pot shot you were taking at me this morning in racquetball, I might have. 
but I didn't. That's just plain Turkey right there. Uh, that means this is the Mediterranean Sea. That means this is uh, Antioch right there. Okay, y'all oriented now? Okay, meanwhile, over in Constantinople, things are happening. Anybody ever been to Istanbul? A few folks. Um, you've seen Hagia Sophia, the famous church there. Um, actually, it's, it's got now these little towers that go up, these minaret things that, that have been added to it. But Hagia Sophia is uh, one of the most famous churches at the time of, that we're looking at. It was uh, a little bit different because it's, it's undergone a lot of changes since then, particularly after it got burned down by some folks a couple of times including once that'll be relevant in our story. But anyway, Hagia Sophia was built by Constantius, the son of Constantine, the emperor after Constantine. And it's an, truly an incredible, awe-inspiring church. If you ever go, it's like the first must-see in Istanbul. Um, Istanbul, or Constantinople at the time, was the center not only of government, at least for the eastern half of the Roman Empire, maybe still for the whole thing, but also for the church. Again, at least the eastern half, with Rome being the principal see for the western half. In 387, the bishop, Nectarius, now you can also see it spelled with a C, depending upon how people translate their Greek, but Nectarius, the bishop, dies in Constantinople. The bishop in Constantinople is like a major job, okay? If there's primacy at the time in the church for the Bishop of Rome, the primacy for the Bishop of Rome, as we would call him a Pope today, um, was always one that was fought over by other bishops, including the Bishop of Constantinople, who thought that since the capital had moved to Constantinople, he should be the preeminent bishop and the, what we would call Pope, not the fellow over here at Rome. Now, we'll get into this more when we start dedicating a class just to papal history. But suffice it to say, you've got the bishop of Constantinople. He dies. Now, the ruler has got the church under his thumb right there in Constantinople. And the bishop of Constantinople is like the bishop. He's like the guy. And it is a huge matter of um, political intrigue. It's a huge matter of church politics and state politics because the bishop can either get along with the emperor or they can be at odds. The bishop can either get along with the other bishops so they can be at odds. And the big bishop at the time, this fella died, was a fella named Theophilus out of Alexandria, Egypt. He's the big bishop in the east. And he's got his own fella, his puppet named Isidore, and he's going to maneuver things to get Isidore in charge of the church. So all the bishops are coming together and the, the emperor at the time is the 17-year-old kid of, uh, of uh, uh, what's his name that just died? Um, what's his name? Starts with a T. Yeah, him. Okay. So you've got uh, uh, Arcadius is the 17-year-old the kid. Okay. And, and Theodorus, his father, just died. Arcadius is the kid. Theophilus, the guy from Egypt, is trying to get his fella in as the ruler the, the, of the church, the head of the church. So he's doing all of his lobbying. He's doing all of his politicking. Meanwhile, the 17-year-old kid, new emperor, 
his uh, trusted uh, advisor is a guy named Eutropius. And Eutropius says, uh, man, I don't like the way this is going down. That Theophilus guy wants to run the whole church. And I think he's a bit of a nut job anyway. Okay? He's really whacked out on power. It's his way or the highway. And he's going to railroad this thing and get his puppet installed so that in essence he can rule Christendom in the eastern half. He says, I'm not into that. I don't think that's a good thing. You know what we need? We need someone from the outside. We don't need an insider. We need, uh, we need someone who's not all caught up in the politics, not all caught up into affiliation with this party or that party or, or who. We just need an outsider. You know, that St. John Chrysostom down in Antioch has quite a following. Preaches powerful sermons. The people love him. He's really not political at all. He might be, he's the guy. So Eutropius goes to the Roman emperor and says, uh, look, kid, because the emperor is only 17, right? Says, uh, he may be 19 by now. He says, look, kid, um, we need St. John Chrysostom. The problem is if word gets out about it, old Theophilus from Alexandria will uh, drive him through the dirt and the guy will never make it. So we got to do this like really fast and careful and on the sly. So the emperor says, makes good sense to me. Let's get the church run by a good church man instead of by some power-hungry whack job. And uh, yeah, it's a pretty compelling point. Who's going to be your pastor? Power-hungry whack job? Or an integrity guy who can preach? Okay, so they go for the integrity guy who can preach. Um, they don't even tell John Chrysostom how they're going for him. King just sends down his carriage and some soldiers. Says, tell John Chrysostom he's got to get to Constantinople. Meanwhile, all the bishops are meeting in Constantinople. Guy goes down, uh, knock, knock, knock. Uh, yeah, are you John Chrysostom? Well, not yet, but I'm John at this point, and I'll be Chrysostom in about 150 years. Says, okay, that's good enough. You're the guy we're looking for. Says, uh, uh, the emperor needs you back in Constantinople. What for? I don't know. Nobody tells me. They just tell me to go get you. Well, I mean, what am I leaving for? I don't know. King says, come. You say, okay. Okay? He says, well, how long am I going to be gone? I don't know. Get in the carriage. We're supposed to take you there. So Chrysostom thinks he's mighty being arrested. He doesn't know. So he gets in the carriage. Boom. Off they go. They traverse the land. They get up there to Constantinople. And then when Eutropius realizes his arrival is imminent, Eutropius goes down to Theophilus and says, hey, buddy, we need an outsider. The emperor said who he wants. He wants St. John Chrysostom. He's not under your thumb. He's not under the other people's thumb. He's not under anybody's thumb. He's just a good preacher with integrity who needs to run the church. Theophilus says, but, 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 and he says, no buts. Now let's get this thing done. And lo and behold, in 398, Chrysostom is made bishop of Constantinople. Now, what do you think man of integrity does to the church when he becomes bishop? Well, Palladius wrote about him a few years later after he was dead, maybe 50 years later. And Palladius says, he started sweeping the stairs and he started at the top. He's going to clean up the church because he's a man of integrity. 
He said, first of all, I am appalled to find out that celibate monks, men who have dedicated their lives and promised celibacy to God, have virgins who live in their house as permanent housekeepers. He says, hey, that ain't happening. You would think if these women were just that good at cleaning house, the monks wouldn't be that upset because they could still come in and clean each morning and just leave at five. But for some reason, the monks liked the women cleaning through the nighttime hours. <laughs> Two deacons, bam, they were gone. One for adultery, one for murder. He wasn't going to have that in the church. Didn't think it belonged in the church power structure. Oh, and while he's at the top cleaning, do you know what one of the favorite things of all of the, the church hierarchy was? They would have these massive banquets with sumptuous food in a sumptuous hall, wearing only the finest, praying before each meal. He says, Oh, and, and the, the head bishop guy, Nectarius is the guy who'd always pay for him with the church coffers and called, you know, and, hey, if I get to go to the bishops for the big Lord High Muckety Muck lunch, you know, and it's the dinner thing. It's just me and the other devout holy ones. And he said, no, we're turning it into a soup kitchen and we're bringing in all the people that don't have any money and food. And uh, preachers... Uh, you're not going to be sitting there dining on the, the turkey. You're going to be cutting the turkey and serving it. Um, there were a lot of people not real jazzed about this guy. <laughs> it just wasn't quite making it with some of the rich and powerful and some of the people within the church. And then he got a little worse. Money might get donated for some elaborate, beautiful purple drapes to hang behind the altar. And do you know what he'd do with that money? He'd take it and he'd build orphanages and hospitals for the indigent and the needy. In fact, he started selling some of the gold and silver of the church to take care of the orphans and the people in need. Um, he didn't only change things from that perspective of the church, as he swept, he started sweeping towards the bottom. And he'd be giving these sermons. And his sermons would challenge people to give alms, to give money. But he'd say, don't give money to the church right now beyond what you're supposed to be giving. But you need to give more. Do you know what you need to do? You need to go out there and you need to find people that don't have any food. And you need to feed them. You need to go find people that are hurting and you need and don't have any clothes and you need to clothe them. And he really started preaching powerful sermons on how Jesus Christ would live if he were those people. And he did it from scripture. Now, there was an empress. This was the woman who was married to the young boy, the emperor Arcadius. Her name was Eudoxia, which comes from two Greek words, which means good gift. She may have been a good gift to the king, emperor, but she was not a good gift when it came to St. John Chrysostom. This is a coin. That's an old Roman coin that we've still got, and that's her picture on the coin. 
it's still there for us to see. Um, she was real into materialism. And it seems St. John used her as the, an illustration in a few of his sermons on how not to be. I think the one that really struck her most badly was when, at least the rumor was, he compared her to Jezebel. So she decided this is not what the emperor of Constantinople needs to be. Now, in fairness, by the way, to John Chrysostom, he didn't specifically say Empress Eudoxia is Jezebel. He just talked about how the people might look at events in that day and wonder if there is a Jezebel married to the king whose body deserves to be eaten by the dogs of the street because of the way she's abusing the people for her own welfare. That's all he did. Um, he was not a real political guy. Uh, he just spoke what he thought God had put on his heart, and he was there to clean up. He was God's. That was his calling. So Eudoxia manages to get with Theophilus, who's still not happy that his fella didn't uh, get the position, the coveted position, and they kind of hold this little uh, synod, and basically they excommunicate and banish. Uh, not excommunicate. They banish and push into exile. Uh, uh, St. John Chrysostom. So he relinquishes the bishopric there in Constantinople and they ship him as far away as they possibly can. Way over there. Ultimately, he's, he, he, and it goes in stages. At first he goes away, but, and, and the first time he went away, he got exiled. There was an earthquake. Not only was there an earthquake, but the empress had a miscarriage. And she thought, okay, God's judging me. This is bad. We'll let him come back. Not only did she think that that was her judgment, but at the same time, all of the many people that, whose lives had been touched by this man were uh, burning down Hagia Sophia and saying that the church has become just an arm of the government and this whole thing's political and this whole thing's rotten and finally we had a man of God and look what you've done. And they were up in arms. So uh, uh, back comes uh, John. And he preaches this wonderful sermon where he says, glory to God in everything, in all that is good and in all that is bad. Glory to God. It's a very powerful sermon. From the rising of the sun to the setting of the same, the name of the Lord is to be praised. All things work together for good for those who love the Lord. And with scripture after scripture after scripture, he says it doesn't matter whether it's good or bad. What matters is are we going to glorify God? with our lives. That's the choice we have to make, he told them. He says, you have a choice. When life is good, it's easy. But when life is bad, it's not. It doesn't matter. The choice is the same. Are you going to glorify God or not? And in all things, whether good or bad, glorify God. Amen. So be it. That was his sermon. Very powerful sermon. Six months later, the queen decided maybe I had the miscarriage for other reasons. Earthquakes come, earthquakes go. And I think this was about the time he did the Jezebel sermon. It was the second shot for him. And, and so he got sent, and this time he gets sent even further and further. And uh, the soldiers that are driving him on give no regard for his health or his welfare or how he's feeling. They forced him to march one night, uh, one afternoon, five miles while he's running an incredibly high fever. He's still a sickly, frail man from his time in the caves. And uh, uh, that night he comes into the town of Kimona and the little church there received him and, and tried to give him some cold presses and tried to warm him by the fire at the same time they tried to cool him off and, and, uh, from his fever. 
Uh, the next morning, he says to the soldiers, I just don't feel up to traveling. Can I please, you know, just rest and try and get over this and, and get the strength? They said no. Um, and they forced him to march another five miles before he just collapses unconscious. He collapsed unconscious. The soldiers brought him back. They wrapped him in a white shroud. And uh, he regains consciousness as the priest, the local priest is there, just long enough to take the Lord's Supper. He takes the Lord's Supper. His last breath, as he crosses himself, is glory to God in everything. In the good and in the bad. Amen. And he dies. It's 25 or 30 years later before the people of Constantinople are in such a rage that they finally bring his bones back and said, this man was a great man of God. And the Greek church today recognizes John Chrysostom as one of their four founding fathers of their faith, one of the four great doctors of the church, if you will. His sermons, as I told you, are incredible. They were driven within him. He had to preach. He had no choice. He said... Just as you hunger to hear what I have to say, know that even more so, I hunger to tell it to you. He said, I cannot let a day pass without feeding you the treasures of Scripture. I love that. Because Scripture is loaded with treasures. And that's what he preached. He preached scripture over and over and over. I love one of his Matthew sermons starts out. And here's his introduction. He says, um, this is going to be our action step today. He says uh, uh, at the start, I've heard many of you say that you love to come to church. It makes you feel good. You feel good about life. You feel good about what you're doing. The worship just stirs you up. And you feel great. And then you leave church and you just step back right into the normal life as if you'd never been really. There's nothing you're really taking home. There's no real change. He says, how can we make that different? I don't want it to be that way for you. It should not be that way for you. He said, let me give you a practical suggestion. And this is the way he preached. This is an incredible sermon. Here's a practical exception. When you leave here today, don't just plug back into your normal everyday life. Take a moment and get with your family. Take your spouse, take your kids. If you don't have family here, take a friend. But get with someone. Or get on the phone with family. Get with somebody. He didn't say get on the phone. I just threw that in. <laughs> he would have, though, if they'd had phones. He said, he said, get with someone and discuss the sermon. Just talk about it. Talk about what, what was said at church, what you liked and what you didn't like. What makes sense and what doesn't make sense. He says, do you realize just by talking about it, after it's over, you're changing a bit of your normal practice and you're bringing it into everyday life. I thought it was a wonderful idea. I put one of his sermons in your handout. Do you have, can I use your handout, Steve? One of his sermons is still used today. 
in many, especially Eastern Orthodox churches, on Easter. I've got three minutes in which I'm allowed to give it to you. And then we have points for home. I'm going to take it. You can read along if you want to to see if I'm messing up. But uh, you don't have to. Now, when he was given it, he wouldn't have had this and he wouldn't be reading it. It would have just been straight from his, his gut. Okay? I don't have it memorized, um, uh, so I have to look at it. But I want you to hear a little bit of his words. I think it's fitting. He died in September, um, uh, in the month of September. So we're a few days away from his month of his death. But I think it's kind of cool, the idea that a sermon he gave... Uh, 1,600 years ago might be spoken in our midst as we talked about it. If there are, and I'm going to change a little bit of this translation to make it a little bit more fluid for us as I read along. If there are devout and God-loving people here, let them enjoy this beautiful Easter festival. This was Easter morning he's speaking. If there are, are careful servants of God, let them enter joyously into God's joy. Now, if you're tired and, and spent from the fasting you've done, getting ready for Easter, enjoy now your reward. You remember Jesus gave the parable about the men who came to work, and some worked for one hour, and some worked for three, and some for six, and some for nine, and, some, and yet they each got their full reward. He says, whoever's toiled from the first hour, if you've been following Jesus for a long time, most of your life, then receive today what he's got coming to you. If you only came after the third hour, that's okay. Still, with joy in your heart, you receive what Jesus has for you. If you came after the sixth hour, don't worry about it. Don't have any misgivings. Don't feel bad about the way you spent most of your life. You haven't lost anything because you are here today. And if you didn't come until the ninth hour, then you come on anyway. And don't you be at a loss because it doesn't matter what's happened in your past. If you've only come at the 11th hour, you don't be worried that you're late because you are here today. And today we have a risen Savior. Today we have a master who is gracious. And he accepts the person who just came today just as much as he does the person who came 75 years ago. He gives rest in the heart and life of the person who comes to him today just as much as he does to the person who's been with him for 75 years. He's lenient with the person and forgives them of their sins when they come today, just as much as he did to the ones who came first. He will give you freely if you come to him today, just as much as if you had come to him 50 years ago. He accepts what you do. He welcomes what you do. He honors what you do. He commends what you do. So all of you, enter into the joy of our Lord. Share the bounty, rich and poor alike. Celebrate together. Whether you're serious or whether you're happy-go-lucky, honor today. Those who fasted, those who didn't fast, you rejoice today because God has set out a table before you that's full. The calf is fatted and no one who eats of God will go away hungry. 
No one needs to worry that they're poverty stricken and they have no money because the kingdom of God is universal and he accepts everybody regardless of what they have. No one needs to grieve over their sins anymore when they know the forgiveness that came from the tomb that was empty. No one needs to fear death. The Savior's death has freed us all. He descended into hell and he despised it. He despoiled it. He took what hell had. It was angered when it tasted Jesus. Because foreseeing this, Isaiah prophesied Hades was angered when he met you below. Hell was angry. Satan was angry because hell was abolished for Christians. Hell was angered because hell had been mocked by Jesus. It was angered because it was slain. It was angered because it was shackled. It received a body. It encountered God. And it took earth and came face to face with heaven. And hell and death fell before the Lord Jesus Christ. So death, where is your sting? Hell, where is your victory? Christ is risen and you are overthrown. Christ is risen and demons have fallen. Christ is risen and angels rejoice. Christ is risen and life rules. Christ is risen and not one dead Christian remains in the tomb. For Christ, having risen from the dead, has become the first fruits of all that slept. To him be the glory and the dominion forever. Amen. That guy's a pretty good preacher. <laughs> Points for home. Glory to God for everything, whether good or bad. Glory to God. Thank God for good preachers. There are good preachers. There are lots of good preachers. God's got a great preacher plan for our church. And I'm excited about that. And I think we all need to pray for our search committee to find that preacher. Because that's what we want. Would you pray with me, please? God, please be with us all this week. Bring us back together next week. Thank you for the joys of learning how you've worked in history of godly men that you've called in, in certain places and in certain times to do things. And Lord, may we find those men of integrity and, 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 and women of integrity and may we, we uphold them with what we do with our lives and the words we say and the things that we live and, and not tear them down. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.